Hello, and welcome to Tunneling Journal's podcast series, Our Underground Future, Episode 5. In this episode, Professor Dix draws on almost 30 years global legal experience as a disaster investigator, lawyer, and barrister with his candid insights and advice to explore the role and limitations of emerging de facto legal standards, such as the new FIDIC Emerald Book for Underground Works. The underlying theme of this podcast is the difficulties of fairly weaving ground condition risks and other acute issues for underground projects into a fair legal framework within project documents. Today's discussion is going to focus upon your role in the bigger picture. It's going to focus on your role, not just as the professional, not just as the subject matter expert, whether you're the engineer, the lawyer, the banker, the insurer, the technician. No, something bigger. It builds upon our earlier discussions about your duties and standards and the sort of behaviour that's expected of you. But what's often not discussed is how you fit in in the bigger picture and how the bigger picture can influence the way you do your job. And you need to understand that bigger picture. You need to understand how everything is structured, how the projects in which we deliver our services, whether we're designing them or building them or operating them or refurbishing them, whatever we're doing in this critical underground, you've got to understand how you fit in in the zoo. What is your part structurally in the delivery, in the operation, in the construction, in the maintenance, in the refurbishment of this highly specialist absolutely essential underground infrastructure and spaces. In this presentation, I assume you now understand why it is that we need these underground spaces. I assume that you understand what's expected of you professionally in that sort of legal risk assessment standards kind of way. But we're going to take a step up. We're going to step up into contractual context. We're going to look at some of the innovations in underground contracting. And if the work, the discussions, the journey we've been on in the prior four explorations was an undergraduate course, we're now moving up to the master's level. So step up with me conceptually, intellectually, things are changing in this space. So shock number one, how you're expected to behave, the way you discharge your duties, the way you use the tools that we've been discussing, your professional tools, the 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 craft you have, the special value you bring, how you do that, how you do that best varies depending upon your role, your contractual role. Consider the position you're in at the moment. Just consider, are you acting for the client? Are you with the designers? Are you with the verifier? With a banker? 
with an insurer, with an operator, with a regulator? Where do you fit in? It's an interesting dimension because you might be an engineer, but where you fit in, the way in which you exercise your discipline, the way in which you contribute to this critical, important underground space can vary depending upon which lens you're looking at it through. What is your role? What is the tension that you have to apply? What is the service that you're having to provide? And it's different. It's actually different depending upon which chair you're sitting in. And the differences and understanding the differences becomes one of the ways you can differentiate yourself as a professional. Because understanding those differences allows you to better perform your role and we all need to perform our roles professionally and honourably. And the reason you've got to understand this context is our projects are at the absolute cutting edge, the absolute stress point, at the extreme end of global financing, global politics, political stability, governance. Our projects are so important and so large that subtleties in the way each of us exercise our role can make a difference. We're operating in a very tense and increasingly tense space somewhere between the citizens of countries and their governments. Our behaviours are influencing, are influencing right now the way the man and woman on the street feels about their government. They're influencing the balance of power between competing national interests. We are in a critically important position in the history of our world in terms of how we arrange limited resources, not just because the infrastructure we deliver is so critical to the future, which is what we've already discussed and furiously agreed on, It's so critically important because we're actually delivering these aspirational objectives for the people of the world and we're delivering it during a very stressed time in human history. Because of that, because of that responsibility, we discover, and I hope you'll enjoy this journey of discovery, we discover that The burden on our shoulders is not just in delivering, maintaining, operating, refurbishing this underground infrastructure. 
but it's in reinforcing the institutional relationships, the relationships between businesses and governments, between governments and other governments, between our businesses and other businesses. We are at the stress points in our world at the moment because what we do is so big and what we do is so important. So understanding how your particular role fits in impacts the ability of our projects to reinforce or undermine the relationship between people and their governments. It reinforces or undermines the ability of governments to deliver, maintain and operate this critical underground infrastructure and spaces. We are performing a crucial role in delivering a sustainable future. Now, if you think about it, at its simplest, the projects that we're involved in are normally so big that traditionally, because the projects deliver a benefit to the communities, traditionally, the government would just do it, just deliver it. Because these are big projects for everybody's benefits. And, you know, even today in some countries I've worked, and this may come as a surprise, but it's true, but it came as a surprise to me when I first discovered it. In some countries right now, even today, basic essentials that rely on underground infrastructure are provided to the citizens of those countries for free. That is, the entire cost, the entire concept, the actual operational cost, the whole thing is provided for free. So if you need electricity, you get it for free. If you want water, you get it for free. Can you believe that? I, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. Now, I know that's not typical, but imagine, imagine a world in which we all got our energy and our clean water and our sanitation and our transport for free. It's like utopia kind of thing. Well, it's not typical and it doesn't sound like the sort of world I can imagine is going to occur in the immediate future or maybe never at all. But it highlights that each of us individually, ideally, would like to be in a social arrangement, in a country, in a world where basic human needs like clean water, sanitation and power and transport would be provided at a very reasonable cost to us, not a huge burden. So in a world where we can't do that and there's no reasonable expectation that we're going to be able to do that, then these projects in which we're involved in whatever capacity from an aspirational sense need to be delivering those benefits for the people in the most efficient and cost-effective means possible. And the reason they have to do that is because the delivery of those basic needs most efficiently 
as possible is good for us all because it reinforces our social arrangements, it reinforces the benefits of government, it makes our life more pleasant, the world a better place. So how governments arrange the delivery of these mission-critical assets, the ones we're involved in, the clean water, the sanitation, the transportation, the energy, the safe places, how governments deliver them, maintain them, operate them, refurbishment, that is at the heart of social order and contentment. And in order, therefore, for us individually to do our jobs as best we can, we need to have this context and understand this context. So step back just for a minute. What are the processes that involve? What are the steps that are involved with our, our underground projects? Well, there's a pro- we need to identify what's needed. There needs to be some process of figuring out a solution, some sort of a design process. Someone's got to pay for it, so we need financing. There's a construction phase. Got to operate, maintain it, refurbish it, own it. It's like all these different things that have to be done. And there are innumerable ways to arrange things to do this. And there are limited resources financially, intellectually, equipment, everything, all sorts of limitations. So arranging this process, arranging for these assets, arranging for them in some some way that suits the local circumstances. And remember our earlier discussions about local circumstances, customs, ethics, morality, all of that is essential. And there's a huge range. I'm not sure which arrangements you've worked in, but let me just remind you some of the arrangements. Firstly, you just design something, go out to the market, get a price, get someone to build it for you, and it's done. That's the old, old school method. Arguably the most efficient, but only efficient where there are sufficient resources in government, that is where the client is an informed client and a resourced client, that is, has both the aspirational understanding of what's required and the ability to deliver it with sufficient resources at its fingertips. The reality is there's a long, long trail of various options which allow the infrastructure and underground spaces to be built in which the most simplistic methods can't be used. Let me just go through a couple to remind you. You've got operation and maintenance contract, the good old, we call it O&M. So it's fine, the state goes out and a private uh, organisation contracts to operate the publicly owned asset for a period of time. So typically the asset stays in the ownership of the state, but uh, it's an operation and maintenance contract. And we get to 
build and finance. So private sector builds it and finances it. And that's a quite simple one. Build, finance. What about build, operate, transfer? Okay, so private sector builds it, operates it, and then at some later stage transfers it. So this is interesting because it's a more complicated and long-standing sort of setup. What about build, own, operate, transfer? Okay, build it, own it, operate it, transfer. Okay, so ownership of the asset moves out of the state into the private sector, operated, and comes back. Then there's build, own, operate. Okay, so you can build, own, oh, build, lease, transfer. Hang on, build, build, finance, maintain. Design, build, finance, maintain, operate. Design, build, operate, transfer. Design, construct, manage, finance. Concession. In fact, there is no limit on the arrangements that can be put in place. I could spend the next day going through various arrangements for the apportionment of risk, the apportionment of finance, the apportionment of benefits, and they all would subtly change the role, your role, within that structure. Because with these arrangements comes a change in the specific duties and obligations to each of the participants. But in the end, in the end, often, most usually, it's a question of money. And it's not just a question of how much money. It's also a question of where does the money go? And importantly, who knows where the money goes? And I raise this in our discussion today because if you accept the general proposition that this infrastructure is absolutely essential for our civilization going forward, and if you accept that the amounts of resources, particularly financial resources, are so large that it can literally affect the GDP of nations, then how you deal with the money does matter. It matters because it's such a limited resource and it matters because it can impact the relationship between a state and how its citizens feel the life of those citizens. Remembering before that in some states, even today, some countries, even today, water and electricity and sewerage are for free. And I'm not saying that that's right. Please don't don't think I'm saying that I think that's a good idea. I'm not saying that. I'm just illustrating that there's such a spectrum of outcomes from a citizen's point of view. And we are involved at this stress point, both in terms of time in history and stress point in terms of relationship between the states and their people. So I'm talking contracts. 
I'm suggesting to you, you need to know how you fit in in the zoo. Why is it that this work we do is of such interest, not just within each of our countries, but to the world? And the answer, the answer to that is this or these underground spaces that we're creating in a world where almost nothing is certain, our infrastructure lasts a long time. It's comparatively low risk and therefore it's very attractive for investment if the right terms can be negotiated. In other words, if you're in government and you can deliver these fundamental water, sewerage, power, transport solutions underground, and you can do it at a cost competitive rate, the benefits for your community are enormous and long-standing. And we know that because as we discussed earlier, the most stable and wealthy countries have a backbone of infrastructure which just works. And yes, it costs money to maintain. And yes, there are some legacy issues, but fundamentally, this infrastructure is such a wonderful benefit to the communities it serves over very, very long periods of time. So that means that means it's attractive to not just individual countries, but it's of interest to governments and money funds and investors who are looking for comparatively low risk investments. That's why I said right at the beginning, you've got to understand where you sit in the zoo, how it's working. So knowing that, it should come as no surprise that there are international pressures, international pressures applied in all countries when major infrastructure is being considered because it actually doesn't matter so much which country the infrastructure is in. What matters is how are the arrangements made for the return on that investment? And that's why there can be so much interest in our international projects from international players, both privately and even governments. And that's why I'm suggesting take a moment, take a deep breath and think about where you fit in in the scheme, how you fit in in this picture. The challenge the challenge for us as individuals, once we understand the scheme in which we're operating, is to understand our proper and noble role within it. If you have a long history working for a contractor and you have developed teeth sharper than a lion's when it comes to negotiating for variations, you might not be the right person sitting in the government's team 
because those lion's teeth in the government's team might not fully understand the roles and responsibilities, the roles and responsibilities that you have when exercising your special skills to look after the people, as in the people within that country, the special duties and standards of a government to act honourably because it represents the people. And likewise, if you've got a long history acting within government, your ethical and moral compass might not be quite adjusted for the rough and tumble in a contractual context, say sitting with a supplier who's literally scrambling for survival uh, and fighting its competitors. My point is we're not talking about professional conduct because professional conduct remains the same. That's our earlier discussions. What we're talking about now is how we discharge our duties professionally, always meeting the professional standard, but within the context of how a project is arranged. Now, what are the major project, project challenges? Well, major challenges in the world right now are projects cost too much to build, they cost too much to maintain, they take too long to build, their dispute management systems are far too aggressive, Often we end up with projects where the client says it doesn't quite do the job they want. Politics complicating engineering and in many markets at the moment, local companies getting destroyed just because international resources and practices do not translate well into the local market. Controversial subject, could easily talk about that for a long time, but it is a fact. So in this contractual battleground, in my view, and it's just my view, and I'd asked you to consider the view, you don't have to accept it, but consider the view. What is essential is that unfair risk allocation, no matter how you set the contracts up, should be avoided because unfair risk allocation leads to higher than expected costs. And that doesn't just mean the end cost, that can also mean higher than expected costs because it destroys entire organisations. In our underground context, the most common and most severe area for unfair risk allocation is ground condition risk. And that's not just ground condition risk in the physical geotechnical sense, but also ground condition risk in the sense of administrative and legal con controls over the development. I'll talk about that a little later. And the practice, which seems to be increasingly popular, and I'm speaking here particularly to the lawyers amongst you who are listening, that you encourage clients to think and you give the impression that it's desirable that unfair contracts that people are not able to negotiate, that companies cannot negotiate, are a victory. And they're not. 
they're not a victory because they pervert the projects and ultimately lead to them being less efficient and less effective and more costly than they have to be. I'm suggesting that each of us, where we can, in our own individual ways, should try and influence those whom can be influenced into making the contracts for the things we create more fair and equitable. And if we do that, if we can regain a sense of fairness and and this sense of fairness and reasonableness, this is not a question of making profit or not profit. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fairness. The reason it's so important in this particular area of underground construction, underground operation, underground refurbishment is because what we're doing is so fundamental for humanity. So we, we have to have a special gauge on how we contract. We need to be sure that the contracts allow for behaviours from each of us that contribute to the ultimate objective for delivering sustainably and maintaining and refurbishing and operating this underground infrastructure, but doing it in a way that can be repeated next year and the year after. And within those contractual arrangements, it should be clear what are the duties of individuals and institutions and organisations. There should be clear discussion about the rule of law, how it's observed by all, and that all should be equal before it. There should be processes in real and meaningful time to respond to issues that arise, and there should be an effective method for resolving any matters. Those ideas, those basic requirements can only be understood by you, and I mean you, like you listening to this discussion, understood by you if you understand how you fit in and what is really required of you and your organisation in the particular project, in the particular role you're working in. And if you're not happy, if there's something that's troubling you, don't be backwards in, in saying it. <coughs> Um, so we're going to delete this bit at around 21 minutes. Don't just stop it. At, don't don't be backwards in raising it, and and then I'm going to start again. <coughs> Get my throat clear. Starting again now. Don't be backwards at raising it, and don't be backwards at learning from it. The best example right now in our world on how contractual arrangements can be improved and how each of us can better understand our role would have to be some of the innovations in the FIDIC New Emerald Book of Contracting. 
And that that particular activity is being raised, that particular output's being raised, not because it's a specific endorsement of that product because it's a, a specific product for, you know, particular application. What's important is that that particular product was a collaboration between the International Tunneling Association and FIDIC following an informed global research project on what are successful projects. And when, when we as ITA looked at what made projects successful, we found three key things, uh, informed risk allocation, the use of experienced experts, and a good culture. Okay, interesting. So we, we took those lessons and we worked with FIDIC to come up with some innovations. And the other thing that we discovered through our research was that for governments and necessarily therefore the citizens, what was important was certainty in terms of the finished product, cost certainty and accountability. So you've got to, got to be accountable for the costs and what's delivered. And we discussed this and sought feedback from 40 countries over five years. And we learned that in setting up these contractual relationships, the framework within which you have to work, there were some themes and there were some themes which we think for our specialist underground projects are really useful to document and if possible, implement. We didn't feel that it was useful for projects to be vague about what is the most important set of priorities. So the contract data the, um, is, is essential, the completion schedules next, the schedule of baselines next, the geotechnical baseline reports next, the employer's requirements and finally general conditions. We set up a cascading set of priorities. We, we made it clear that the most important trigger events while delivering infrastructure were related to the completion schedule, so time, and also the schedule of baselines, the, the baseline facts and circumstances the projects relied on. And the contractors are expected to do the jobs they tendered in accordance with the agreed schedule. So the deal is you do the job in accordance with the schedule. Now, this is important for each of us individually. As I said before, I'm just introducing the concepts of contracts as a way of defining a platform for you to do your job. This contract then makes it very clear what's important and what's not for you as an individual in the scheme of the project. And interestingly, in this newer form of contract, the lawyers are directed towards the administration of the contract. They're not directed towards disputes on fact. The facts are directed towards the technical people. And the engineering aspects of the project 
are actually directed towards the, the engineer, the project's engineer. So if you are employed by the, the engineer's office, you're in an essential factual position. Your role, the discharge of your duties under this style of contracting are to focus upon the truth and facts of what is actually occurring, how the ground is responding, how the support is performing, how the project is progressing, and not to be continuously looking for mechanisms to claim for variations. And importantly, under this more modern mechanism, there are advanced dispute avoidance board mechanisms. In other words, instead of driving the relationship between all the parties to conflict, there are clear mechanisms to refer disputes off to alternative dispute mechanisms. Again, this type of framework being an alternative approach, a different sort of ecosystem to what traditionally or more commonly we've been seeing around the world. This is why before I said, ask yourself who you're working for and what is the total environment in which you're working. Under this style of contract, the focus is on the engineering and the delivery. It's on the difference between what we were told the conditions were going to be and what they actually are. It's on the difference between how we thought the ground was going to behave and how it actually does. And it makes each of our roles different because our focus is on performance and it's on focus on performance on the basis of the facts as we understood them to be. And the client, the state, the representative of the people, they're under these newer forms of contracts, very clear on what the purpose of the works is. And they even require specification of key people who are going to work on the project. You need to know that. See, in, in some projects, and perhaps projects you're currently working, once they uh, begin, the key people move on to other projects and less experienced people are put into positions of comparative power. You might be one of them. You might be one of the clever ones. You might be one of the less experienced ones. Great career opportunity, but can be a problem if things go really wrong. Again, we've had that discussion earlier on professional duties and judgment. This type of arrangement helps define responsibilities and helps each of us individually know what our responsibilities are. The geotechnical baseline reports, which form part of this particular style of contracting, describe the subsurface physical conditions and they serve as the basis for the execution of the excavation and lining works. They drive the design and construction methods, they drive the reaction of the ground to such method, and they set up the allocation of risk between the parties. So where you're in that style of project, the focus is on what's really happening out there. How does what's really happening out there differ to what we anticipated as a result of what we were told or told to assume in the contractual documents? So 
this more modern approach, although it's a different way of allocating risk and it's a way that the risk, say, in relation to ground conditions, in substantial part can stay with the state because in the end we don't know what the ground conditions are until we're actually digging. I mean, we don't know how the ground's going to respond. We don't really know how the support's going to respond until we do it. If the client has told us to presume a certain certain range of uh, ground performance, has told us to presume a certain range of ground conditions, then it's entirely appropriate for them to make us responsible for delivering the project on time if those conditions, if those behaviours are observed. So you get certainty in the contract. And if you're in that type of contract and you're one of the professionals involved in that type of contract, you have to understand the duty is on you and your team to get on with it and get the job done on time get the job done according to what you've contracted. The burden's on you. You said, your company said that you were able to do this job. Well, that's your responsible. Get on and do it. So it alters the way you behave. If you're in a more common type of contractual relationship where you're always seeking to discover variations, manufacture variations, manufacture breaches, then your, your focus is more likely to be on attributing blame to others within the project. In both cases, you're acting professionally. In both cases, you've done nothing wrong, but you're, the way in which you behave is quite different because of the contract. Personally, I like the idea that we behave more professionally and ethically and focus upon delivery of the jobs in accordance with what we've promised and on the basis of what we've been told to expect. I like that idea. I think it's better for all of us and it's better for our our countries uh, and the faith in our industry, but that's my personal view. So understand, understand the contractual context in which you're doing your job. And if you understand it, then questions such as extensions, uh, variations, um, unforeseeable shortages in personnel or goods, uh, all these sorts of problems, they're, they're all contemplated. They're all dealt with. So you can get on and do your job more technically and less like a strategist. So... Understand the contractual context in which you're working. Understand the overall strategy of the project in which you're working. That is all the different parties and what each of the individuals and organisations for all of those other parties, what obligations they're under so that you can better play your part. Understand that how you conduct yourself 
does impact your company, your organisation and the project at large and that that conduct is something more than just doing your job. The latest Fittick Emerald book hopefully marks a critical step change in global recognition of the importance of ground conditions when apportioning risk in subsurface construction projects. And if you're in a project where that type of ground condition recognition is activated, understand your roles and don't bring your behaviours that might have been encouraged in other projects we are always seeking to do a variation, always seeking to blame another organisation or party or individual for a problem in order to claw back money. The global construction industry at the moment is facing all sorts of challenges because of inappropriate risk allocation and you might be working on projects where that's occurred and they may well be extremely stressed. I ask you to consider what's going on around you, take note of it and next time, if you have any possibility at all in influencing the way the projects are set up, remember how the contracts are set up can positively and negatively impact your enjoyment, your professional conduct out there doing your job. And don't be bashful about giving your opinion. Remember, if there are ways to put in place alternative mechanisms for resolving disputes or avoiding disputes, consider embracing them with open arms because there is nothing worse, nothing worse for any of us than to be drawn down the vortex of conflict when our world so desperately needs the infrastructure we want to build them. It so desperately needs the underground spaces we want to deliver for them. Fairness, contracts which are fair, advocate them. Ultimately, your businesses will earn more money, more sustainably, in a fair contracting environment. In whatever country you're in, try and understand and observe how business is conducted and be very careful that you maintain your professional duties and responsibilities on the one hand, and at the same time, understand what's expected of you in that particular country, in that contractual context. A recalibration and a refocus on substantive engineering and technical resolution of disputes, as we're starting to see now, is a healthy sign that more efficient and more effective underground works can be delivered. And that's something that we all need and that's something that the world needs. Next time we speak, we'll be talking corruption, what I call corruption taxes, and the implications of them on our underground projects, on our underground spaces. I see it as the current and real global threat. Until then, safety underground.
Thank you. That was internationally acclaimed underground expert, Professor Arnold Dix, lawyer, scientist and engineer. Having now explored the importance of the legal framework, negligence, risk assessments, common practices and standards for delivering our underground future, Tunnelling Journal's next podcast with Professor Arnold Dix will explore the hidden cost of modern corruption in underground projects, in which he strongly argues that from an ethical and moral perspective, governments, industry and each of us personally should be vigilant against unnecessary costs, which he characterises as frictional corruption taxes. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Tunnelling Journal.